Hi everyone, I hope you're well. Have I got a story for you today? So, sitting comfortably? Let's get going. Alfred the Great is often remembered as the first King of England and the victor over the Vikings. But that's not the case. True, Alfred saved Wessex from being swallowed up by the Vikings, or more accurately, the Danish invaders. He fought back, he cleared, his king, he cleared them of his kingdom, and then he fortified Wessex so it could never be overwhelmed in the future. But when he died in 899, he was king of less than half of England. He may have referred to himself as Rex Anglorum, king of the English, but you know, more Englishmen actually lived, and women, lived under Danish rule than they did under Alfred's rule. It was left to his descendants to create the political reality of England. And that started with his warrior son, Edward the Elder. But equally, it started with his daughter, a warrior woman in an age where women were normally kept in the background. This is the story of England's forgotten warrior queen, Ethelflade, the Lady of the Mercians. The Anglo-Saxon invaders and settlers of the areas that we now know as England had been on the island for about 400, 450 years by the time Alfred the Great died. And slowly over that time, their disparate tribes and communities had eventually formed seven kingdoms, sometimes called the Heptarchy, uh, Northumbria, East Anglia, Wessex, Sussex, Essex, Kent and Mercia. Now, even before Alfred's time, Essex had been consumed by East Anglia and his own kingdom, Wessex, had, had annexed uh, Sussex and Kent. And then in 865, a huge Viking army arrived. Viking raiders, you know, principally from Denmark and Norway, had been raiding Britain for about the previous 70 years. But as effectively they'd been pirates, they'd, they'd arrived, raided and gone home. The great heathen army of 865 changed everything. Within eight years, they had conquered East Anglia, most of Northumbria, and half of Mercia. Having invaded Wessex, they came within a whisker of toppling Alfred himself. But with a victory at Eddington, Alfred was able to drive the Danes from his kingdom, and in the ensuing peace, he managed to free the western half of Mercia from their control. The Danes' puppet king disappeared from the records, and a regent, Ethelred, was put into power in western Mercia. The once mighty Mercia, which less than a hundred years before had been the dominant Anglo-Saxon kingdom under the leadership of Offa, was now reduced to a rump state. And whilst Alfred did not legally control Western Mercia, he was the power behind the scenes. And this was no more apparent than when a regent, rather than a king, was placed in charge of Mercia. There was only going to be one Anglo-Saxon king from now on. Alfred. Despite being drawn from the royal dynasty of Mercia, Ethelred, the regent, was never proclaimed or crowned king. To tie the two kingdoms together, Ethelred married Alfred the Great's daughter, Athelflaed. Gosh, it gets confusing, doesn't it? Now, you might be starting to get confused with these, this seamlessly endless number of royal characters in Anglo-Saxon history whose names begin with Athel. So let me just pause. Athel in Anglo-Saxon basically meant good or noble. So not surprisingly, many members of the royal dynasties were christened with Athel at the beginning of their name. So for instance, um, Athelred is noble council, Athelred. Likewise, his wife and Alfred's eldest daughter, Athelflaed, noble beauty. Athel was noble, 
played Beauty. So, noble beauty. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Athol Red, Lord of, or Regent of Mercia, marries Athol Flayed of Wessex. Athol Flayed was the oldest of, of Alfred's children, born in about 870, about a year before he came to the throne. Interestingly, her mother was, uh, Alfred's wife, was the daughter of the Mercian Earl of the, the Ganey tribe in Mercia. Mercia was a collection of Anglian tribes, some of whom kept their ancient identity, such as the Hawissa around the Seven Valley and, and the Ganey around the modern-day Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. Uh, Gainsborough means basically the stronghold of the Ganey folk. So, in one way, Athol Flayed was sort of coming home, and certainly she was well-received and respected by the Mercian nobility. Athol Flayed and her husband appear in the Bernard Cornwall's Last Kingdom stories, where Athelred is painted as a bit of a bully and an unloving husband. This seems to be quite a lot of literary license by Bernard Cornwall, as the evidence we do have seems to that they work very closely with each other, very often witnessing charters together, which is unheard of down in Wessex. Not a lot is known about his background, or when he was born, but the Athel part of his name suggests he definitely was descended from the, 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 Mer the Mercian royal family somewhere. In 881 he was elevated to his role of Lord of Mercia, very much with Alfred's blessing. Around this time he led a, a Mercian army into the British Kingdom of Gwyneth, but was defeated. And sometime in the 880s he married Alfred's daughter. By the time Alfred died in 899, Ethelred had been conducting military campaigns alongside Alfred's son and heir apparent, Edward. Together they had destroyed a Danish army and fleet at Benfleet in Essex. When Alfred died in October 899, he was succeeded by his son and heir, Edward, Ethelflaed's younger brother. Alfred had come to the throne back when his brother died in the early 870s. The Council of Noblemen, the Witan, had elected him over the dead king's infant sons. At the time, the great heathen army were rampaging through England and they really wanted an adult on the throne of Wessex. You know we were just talking about the, the name Athel. Well, it also formed the basis uh, of another Anglo-Saxon title, Aethling. An Aethling was someone who was from the royal family and was in line of succession. Traditionally, it was not automatic that a son inherited an Anglo-Saxon throne from his father. Anyone, well, any man, who was a member of the royal family, an Aethling could be elected. So whilst sons very often did inherit, it wasn't always a foregone conclusion. Having been elected back in the early 870s, Alfred, uh, elected king, Alfred had every intention of keeping it in his immediate family, and no other Aethlings would be allowed to, to would, would get into a position where they could challenge that. So consequently, he gave huge land grants to his son Edward and measly grants to his two nephews. This wasn't merely a slight. It was important because it gave Edward the wealth to effectively buy support at the Witan when that vote came around as to who would be the next king after Alfred. And so it was that Edward, soon to be called Edward the Elder, was elected king upon Alfred's death. And one of Alfred's nephews, Aethelwald, was not best pleased. As son of Alfred's older brother, Aethelwald was actually the most senior Aetheling in, Wes in Wessex, and he be believed he had as much right, if not more right, to his father's kingdom than Alfred's son did. And so Aethelwald rose in rebellion. With armed supporters, he seized the Dorset town of Wimborne Minster, declaring he would either be king or he would die there. 
However, upon the arrival of Edward with a sizable army, and don't forget Edward knew how to fight, he duffed in the Danes at Benfleet, Aethelwald slipped out under the cover of darkness and fled as fast as he could to the Norse-controlled Northumbria. In 902, Aethelwald, three years after Edward effectively became king, Aethelwald moved down to East Anglia, and with a combined sort of force of East Anglian and, Northum and Northumbrians, he, uh, he invaded and he ravaged parts of Mercia and North Wessex. A furious Edward retaliated by invading East Anglia and, and roughing up the local Danes as a sort of a punishment. And having done that, he decided to withdraw. However, the men of Kent, who were in his army, for some reason decided they'd disobey him, and they sought out and fought Ethelwald in a battle at a place called Home, which they think is probably near modern-day Biggleswade. The men of Kent suffered horrendously, ca horrendous casualties in this battle, but in the fighting, Aethelwald, the pretender to the crown of Wessex, was killed, and Edward was effectively secure on his throne. It was around this time that Athelred, Lord of Mercia, seems to have become incapacitated. No one knows whether it was a battle injury or another illness, but for the remaining ten years of his life, Ethelflaed, his wife, was the de facto, de facto ruler of Mercia. And we know that she was in effective control in 902 because Norse Vikings escaping a civil war in their settlement in Dublin in Ireland specifically requested to Ethelflaed that she grant them land in Cheshire. And this she agreed to do. The land settled were probably on the Wirral Peninsula, but, you know, once a Viking, always a Viking. And Chester, well, the city of Chester looked a lot much nicer place and the land around it looked far more fertile to settle. So they planned a joint attack with the Danes of York or Jorvik. A joint attack. Ethelflaed learned of the plans. And when the Viking army rolled up, they were met by a garrison standing on the top of the repaired walls of the Roman city. An impregnable burr in Cheshire. Ill-prepared for a siege, that's not what they really used to do here around England, uh, the Vikings nevertheless started to try and undermine the walls by digging underneath them. And it was at this moment that the defenders brought beehives and threw them off the walls onto the Vikings, forcing them to flee. Can you imagine angry bees chasing a Viking army? That was certainly one tactic to work. Uh, the other one, a uh, longer-lasting tactic, was that Ethelflaed sowed dissension between the Danes of York and the, the Norse of Dublin. Remember, we said before, um, they, they, the Vikings weren't a unified group. There were lots of different factions, not least made, made up from some of, from Denmark and some from, from Norway. And she sowed dissension between those two groups, and the attack effectively broke up in acrimony. In 909, Ethelflaed joined her brother Edward in organising a joint Mercian-Wessex strike deep into the Danelaw, as far as Lindsay in North Lincolnshire, where they successfully captured the bones of St. Oswald. And they brought them back to Mercia, and Ethel Flaid and her ailing husband established a priory containing those relics down in Gloucester. Twelve months later, the Danes sought revenge. They invaded Mercia, not across the land border, which you might expect. They sent a fleet all the way around Britain, and they travelled up the River Severn, deep into the heart of Mercia, storming the town of Bridgenorth. And they ravaged the local area, and then they decided they'd actually set out and, and ravage their way, basically cross-country, back to the Danelaw, so take the land route. The massive Danish raiding party had only travelled about 15 miles, when on the 5th of August, 910, they were surprised 
at a place called Tetton Hall, just outside, uh, just outside modern-day Wolverhampton, by a combined Mercian and Wessex army, led by King Edward and his sister, Athelflaed. What happened next is, is not recorded, blow for blow, but the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded a massive English victory at the Battle of Tettenhall, with thousands of Danes, including two kings and many nobles, slain. It was the last time that a large Danish army raided into England for nearly 100 years. The defeat left the Danes, for the first time since the arrival of the great heathen army, unable to defend their border territories bordering Mercia and Wessex. And it was the springboard that Alfred had always dreamed of, and now his son and daughter, acting together, were going to roll back the Danes. And then in 911, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, finally died. Who would be his successor? The Witan, the nobles of Mercia, met. And Edward, son of Alfred's Mercian wife, knew he was a shoo-in. He was the only Anglo-Saxon king. Mercia might only be half of Offa's great kingdom, but they were an ancient and proud people, and there was no love lost between them and their southern neighbours of Wessex. Indeed, Offa and Penda had replaced Wessex kings, and just 75 years beforehand, a Mercian army had invaded deep into Wessex. So instead of the King of Wessex, the, Mer the Witan of Mercia looked to his sister, a woman who they respected and who'd shown her warrior credentials at Chester and Tettenhall. And whilst women were relegated to a secondary role in Wessex politics, Edward's mother, for instance, was never a queen. She was merely called wife of the queen. Mercians had always had a far more liberal approach to involving women in the running of Mercia. And so, whilst what happened next surprised Edward, it didn't surprise many Mercians. The Witan elected Ethelflaed as the Lady of the Mercians. Don't forget that at this stage in Britain's history, the Danes, or the Vikings if you want to call them that, might have been defeated at Chester and at Tettenhall, but they had not heeded an inch of their conquests. They, they still controlled half of what would become England. Yeah, Northumbria, East Anglia, including Essex, and the eastern half of Mercia. That was about to change. Aethelflaed replicated her father's strategy of making Mercia invincible to a future Viking raid by establishing fortified burrs at, uh, at, Bridge, at Bridge North, where the Vikings had just been, at Tamworth, the royal capital, Hereford, Shrewsbury, and at the old Iron Age fort of Eddersbury in Cheshire, overlooking the Mersey estuary and protecting them from a, a seaborne invasion, the northern part of Mercia, from a seaborne invasion. Meanwhile, to show who was really in charge, Edward had marched his army into London, removing it from Mercian control. And then he continued his march into Essex. And by 917, East Anglia had submitted to him. Sometimes we think of the Vikings as acting as this one unified cultural and political unit. That just was not the case. Similarly, there's a tendency to think of the area of the east of Britain that these Danes or Norse invaders controlled as one political entity. And that wasn't helped because later historians are given this whole area an all-encompassing title of the Dane Law. 
However, yet rather like the Vikings themselves, uh, it, was it was a fragmented patchwork, uh, which would sometimes come together for mutual support, but otherwise would act separately. East Anglia was its own kingdom, originally ruled by Alfred's great enemy, come friend, Guthrum. In the north, the modern-day Yorkshire, you had the kingdom of Jorvik, or York. Scandinavians formed settlements often alongside Anglo-Saxons. To this day, towns ending in the letters BY, B or Thorpe, indicator of a Viking settlement. And it's fascinating to plot these names to see the extent of, of Viking influence. And in particular, you can sort of see the names in Yorkshire, especially North Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. You know, we've got Whitby, Weatherby, Scunthorpe, Grimsby, Selby, and then into the Midlands, we have Derby, Corby in Northamptonshire, Groby outside Leicestershire, Rugby in uh, right on the right on the borders in modern-day Warwickshire, and plus we do have uh, names like that up on the Wirral Peninsula as well, where those Norse uh, Vikings from Dublin had settled. And equally fascinating is to see that plenty of old Anglo-Saxon names existed alongside them, which sort of goes to prove that there was a lot of coexistence and that the Vikings didn't replace Anglo-Saxon culture, unlike the the impact that the Anglo-Saxons themselves had on the Romano-British population three, four hundred years ago, uh, previously. Uh, and it would tend to suggest that actually culturally there was actually quite a lot of similarities between the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes. In the East Midlands, or the eastern half of Mercia, Danish earls, or jarls, acted with considerable autonomy, whilst in theory owing some sort of allegiance to Jorvik, York. In fact, five Jarls controlled five significant fortified towns in East Midlands, and these were known as the five boroughs. Derby, Nottingham, Leicester, Stamford and Lincoln. Further south, there were some uh, lesser boroughs, such as Northampton and Bedford. And it was to these boroughs that Ethelflaed and Edward now turned their attention. In 917, the Danes from Northampton launched an attack on the, the Mercian Burr at Toaster. And just as Ethelflaed intended, the Burr held out. With Danish forces focusing their energies on Toaster, Ethelflaed now struck in the north, storming the Danish borough of Derby. Meanwhile, Edward attacked from the south, seizing Northampton. And early the following year, 918, another one of the five boroughs, Leicester, surrendered without a fight to Ethelflaed, Lady of the Mercians. Meanwhile, Stamford similarly submitted to Edward and then he successfully assaulted Nottingham. Only Lincoln remained and quite frankly, seeing the writing on the wall, they capitulated and submitted to Edward without a fight. In a year, Alfred's children had taken back all of Guthrum's old kingdom of East Anglia and all of the Mercian conquests of the great heathen army. Although interestingly, Edward didn't restore the Mercian lands that had submitted to him, to his sister. And before we blame this totally on a younger brother's ego trip or sexism, you need to understand that in that period of history, when people submitted, it was personal. They were submitting to a person, not a state. And we're about to see another example of just how this worked because shortly afterwards, probably the most amazing thing happened. The Danish kingdom of Jorvik itself, modern day York, offered to pledge their loyalty to Ethelflaed. Two of the boroughs under her control and Jorvik, the ancient Northumbrian capital, 
about to come under her influence. Mercia was once again rising from the ashes. And then on the 12th of June, 918, Aethelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, died. She was 48. Aethelflaed's body was transported from the Mercian capital of Tamworth to the Priory of St Oswald's in Gloucester, where she was placed alongside her husband. The Witan of Mercia met again. Now was Edward's moment. Yet once more, the Mercian Witan ignored him, and they proclaimed Aethelflaed's daughter, Aelthwyn, Lady of Mercia. But Lady Aelthwyn was not a queen. She was the Lady of Mercia. And that technicality was really important. There were probably enough Mercian nobles who either thought that she, they should have a man or that Edward had earned the right to be their lord. That they stood aside when in December that year the King of Wessex rode to Tamworth, the Mercian capital, with an armed escort and packed Aelthwyn, Lady of Mercia, off to a monastery in Wessex. And then he took over the reins of government. The Kingdom of Penda and a mighty offer was no more. Three British kingdoms in Wales who previously acknowledged Ethelflaed as their overlord now acknowledged Edward's paramountcy. The Danes of Jorvik, however, refused. They'd been willing to pledge their personal loyalty to Ethelflaed of Mercia, but not to Edward of Wessex. Within 12 months, a coup in Jorvik by a rival Norse Vikings from Dublin put pay to any peace overtures they might have been. In fact, it might have been this inter-Viking threat that had actually led to the men of Jorvik offering their submission to the Lady of Mercia in return for her military assistance. We don't know. But interestingly, they were willing to lose power to their Norse rivals rather than let Edward north of the Humber River. And whilst Edward had annexed Mercia, not everyone in, his, in the former kingdom was happy. And in 924, up in the very northern edges of his new domain, in Cheshire and Chester and Manchester, a rebellion suddenly broke out, supported by warriors from the neighbouring British kingdom of Gwyneth. Edward marched his army from Wessex north and squashed the last flames of an independent Mercia. Edward now controlled all of England south of the Humber. No Anglo-Saxon king had ever held direct control over this vast area. Not Raidwald of East Anglia, not Edwin of Northumbria, nor any of the other Bretwalders, nor the pagan Pender, nor Offer of Mercia, not even Alfred the Great himself. After all the dreams and struggles, England was about to become a reality. Not bad, seeing as that just 50 years before, Edward's own father, Alfred, had been hiding for his life in the marshlands of Somerset as Vikings marauded their way through Wessex. Edward went to his royal manor at Fondon, about uh, on the River Dee, about 10 miles south of Chester, for a bit of well-earned rest after all this empire building. And there, in 924, he died. Once again, the English project was put on ice. It was left to his descendants to complete his task. As they did so, it was the family line stretching back to Alfred the Great through Edward that basks in the glory. And Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, disappears from view, almost airbrushed out of history. 
certainly airbrushed from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which merely refers to her not as the Lady of the Mercians, but as sister of King Edward. That's her position in life. Maybe that was political. You know, the idea of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, don't forget, was to create this, uh, an Anglekin, an English folk. So a united people. So any reminders to the Mercians that actually they could do quite nicely without any help from Wessex wasn't really in the script, was it? Maybe it was ego. You know, Edward the Elder couldn't share the limelight with anyone, even his sister. Maybe it was sexist. A woman ruling and being a warrior queen was an anathema, uh, especially in Wessex, and also to the male monks writing the chronicle. Whilst the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle brushes over Ethelflaed's contribution to the unification of England, the Irish and Welsh annals refer to her as a queen, and the annals of Ulster refer to her as, quote, the renowned Saxon queen. That's how outsiders saw her. But maybe, maybe the best description is from a document called the Mercian Register, where Ethelflaed is simply called the Lady of the Mercians. Victor at Tettenhall, conqueror of Derby and Leicester, receiver of the submission of the Vikings at Jorvik. And here's one last little tasty fact for you. In the long, long story of England's history, when Ethel Flade was succeeded by her daughter, it is the only time in the history of the British monarchy that rule has passed from a mother to a daughter. Ever. It's never been repeated since. Join me next time as we continue to see the descendants of Alfred the Great seek to fulfil his dream. But first, they finally need to overcome those Danes, who had no intention of going quietly into the night. But at the end of it all, a new country will be born. England.